So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Paul is still on his third missionary journey, and partly because we got the kids with us, partly because um, I just like messing around with maps. Um, I got a little graphic thing. I'm not the world's greatest graphic artist, but I, I wanted to kind of, by way of context and setting, um, kind of walk through where we are in the book of Acts and where Paul is going, as we'll see him in the remainder of chapter 20. Um, Brian covered the second half of chapter 19 last week, um, as Paul is still in Ephesus while a riot takes place in town. So Paul stays in Ephesus longer than he stays anywhere else. He stays there for two years. While he's there, he writes the book of 1 Corinthians. And he sends that letter by way of Titus to the church down in Corinth, down in, down in Greece. And it's a harsh letter. It's a hard letter that he writes to them. He writes a letter to them confronting them for some sin in the church that they're not dealing with. And he writes to them about the fact that many of them are rejecting his apostleship. And so he has to write a harsh letter confronting the sin and defending his apostleship. He leaves Ephesus and he goes north to a city called Troas. Now, we're not going to see that listed for us in the book of Acts, but Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians. He's hoping to meet up with Titus on his way back from Corinth. Paul is hoping that as as Titus comes back from Corinth that he would bring a good report. And he wants to meet up with with Titus there in Troas, but he doesn't. He writes this in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them. And went on to Macedonia. So he doesn't see Titus there. So he goes on to Macedonia. Macedonia is where Philippi is. And Berea and Thessalonica. And several of those uh, churches that he had planted earlier on his second missionary journey. While Paul is in Macedonia. Even though it's only one part of one verse in Acts chapter 20. He spends several months there. Long enough to write his second letter to the Corinthians. And he writes that that letter because he does meet up with Titus. Titus comes back from Corinth and he meets up with Paul while he's in Macedonia and he gives him a good report. that They had received his first letter and they had had, uh, accepted that exhortation and that rebuke from the Apostle Paul in that first letter. And so he's encouraged by that. And so he writes them a second letter while he's there in Macedonia which is 2 Corinthians. When he finishes up his time there in Macedonia, he continues on down to Greece. As he's in Greece, that's probably the city of Corinth. So he finally spends time there. We're told here in Acts 20, as we'll read in just a moment, he spends three months there, long enough apparently to write the book of Romans. He writes the entire book of Romans while he's there in Corinth. And then he goes back up to Macedonia travels back through Philippian, Berea, and Thessalonica, and he goes on to Troas, as we'll read in the second part of our passage this morning, something that happens there in Troas, before continuing on his journey to Jerusalem, which is his goal all along. He's, he's wanting to get back to Jerusalem. On the way to Jerusalem, he stops in a city called Miletus, 
where he will call the Ephesian elders to, them, to himself and he will exhort them and, and minister to them as uh, will be covered in the second half of chapter 20 next week. When he finishes in Miletus, he sails on back down to Jerusalem where he's arrested. He appeals to Caesar and then finally makes his way up to Rome. So that's the third missionary journey. And our text this morning is going to be limited to the first 12 verses of chapter 20. And these 12 verses that we're going to read can be divided into two separate sections. The first six verses, verses 1 through 6, are all about those travels that we just summarized. The action starts where we left off with Paul in Ephesus. It continues up to Macedonia, down into Corinth, back to Macedonia, and then back again to Troas. And then that's where the second six verses kick in. And the first six verses take place, and all those travels take place over a period of 18 months to two years, whereas the second six verses, verses 7 through 12, that take place only in Troas, this little city in western Turkey, it takes place over just seven days. On the surface, those first six verses seem to be focusing on Paul's travel plans and all of his traveling arrangements. And the second six verses seem to focus on this strange little story that we'll read about a young man who falls asleep in a third-story window And when Paul gets long-winded, he falls to his death. So there's a lesson there about falling asleep during a sermon. Or maybe it's a lesson about not preaching so long. I don't know. We'll find out when we get there. But that's just on the surface. In reality, this entire passage is about what we've already been talking about in our service this morning. Encouraging the saints. Three times in these 12 verses, we have the Greek word parakaleo, which is normally translated encourage. In fact, it's in the very first verse and the very last verse of our passage, verse 12. And so this passage is bookended, if you will, with the concept of Paul encouraging the saints in the local church. So that's what I want to us to focus our time on this morning as we look at how the early church was encouraged, why it needed to be encouraged, and Lord willing, we'll walk away this morning with a renewed commitment to both give and receive encouragement from the saints here at New Branch. So let's read Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead, 
and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the day of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now what happened in Troas? On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Intending to depart on the next day, he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them for a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Let's pray. Father, as we talk this morning about the encouragement of the saints. We are so thankful, Lord, for this book. We are so grateful, Father, that you have given your word to us, your very breath. And we ask now, Father, that you would speak to us from it. And, Father, as we simply unpack the meaning and intent of your word, may it bring encouragement to the church, encouragement to my brothers and sisters as we wrestle with how we too can encourage the saints in the body of Christ. May we do this for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to walk through this passage this morning using those two sections that we mentioned earlier as kind of divisions of the text. First of all, in the first six verses, which detail Paul's travels from Ephesus to Macedonia, from Macedonia down to Greece, from Greece to back to Macedonia, and then back over to Troas. As, as we look at those travels, twice we see Luke mentioning that Paul was encouraging the saints. First in verse 1, it says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And then, in, then second, in verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Paul's ministry, as we track his work among the churches through the book of Acts, we've seen that his ministry is marked by encouraging the saints. Because the saints need to be encouraged. And the saints need to be strengthened. And we've seen it all throughout Paul's ministry. Whether it was Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. um, As they uh, were strengthening the souls of the disciples there in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch in chapter 14. We're told that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. Encouraging them to continue in the faith. Or whether it was in chapter 15, as they return from that first missionary journey, they come back to Antioch and that that spirit 
of, of encouragement is contagious and it, and it catches on with two guys named Judas and Silas. And we're told there that they too encouraged and strengthened the believers with many words. Or as Paul and Silas in the second missionary journey in chapter 16 As you recall, they're released from the Philippian jail. They go to Lydia's house and they meet with the brothers and we're told that they encouraged them there before departing and moving on. Just a couple of weeks ago, as we saw Paul set out on his third missionary journey, we read about how he set out from Antioch that third time in chapter 18 And we're told after spending some time there, in other words, after spending some time with his home church in Antioch, he departed and went from place to place through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And while that's not the parakaleo word, it's not uncommon to find the words for both encouraging and strengthening used together when describing the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the saints in the early church in our text this morning in these first six verses we can identify three ways that the apostle paul encouraged the saints i think this can be a great example for us first paul sought to help with the tangible needs of the saints think about it part of what paul was doing as he made his way from church to church throughout macedonia and throughout achaia and greece and corinth and all the way down there part of what he's doing is he's collecting an offering he's taking up a collection for who for the for the saints who are in need who are dealing with a famine and are, are poor back in jerusalem Now, we don't see this in Acts chapter 20, but we know it's happening during this time as Paul travels through these areas that are mentioned in Acts 20 because Paul writes about them in his letters elsewhere. In Romans chapter 15, which again, remember, he writes Romans when he's down in Greece, when he's down in Corinth for those three months. And he writes to them of his desire to come and visit them, but first he says, i got to stop by Jerusalem to drop off this collection. So listen to what he says as he longs to meet with the Romans. Romans 15, beginning verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. This is what he's writing as as he's with the church down in Corinth. He says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem delivering them aid to the saints there. He continues in verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of coming to you. Paul also writes of this collection in that second letter to the Corinthians, which again, he writes that while he's hanging out up in Macedonia. So while he's still up in Macedonia, before he comes to visit the Corinthians, he writes this to them in 2 Corinthians 9. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. He's referring there to the collection that he's taken up for the poor in Jerusalem. It's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know of your readiness... 
Your readiness to take part in that collection of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia that he's hanging out with. Saying that Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So you see the encouragement that happens. Paul is in Macedonia. He's writing to the church in Corinth. I'm coming to take this collection from you. And I know that you're ready for this. You've been ready since last year. And when I got that letter back from Titus, when I met up with him, and your zeal for this has stirred up the zeal of the folks in Macedonia to participate in this collection as well. It's encouraged them all. Later in that same chapter in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul writes of the impact of this collection on the saints who are in need in Jerusalem. Here are the the encouragement that this was to them. He says, For the ministry of this service, referring to the collection that he's bringing to them, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So it's encouraging their faith in God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. While they long for you and pray for you because of, your, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And Paul finishes that by saying, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And so it encourages both the the recipient as well as the giver in this collection. So even though Luke doesn't mention this collection in our passage in Acts 20, we, we know that it's happening because of the letters that Paul is writing while he's traveling through these places that he talks about in chapter 20. Perhaps one of the reasons why Luke doesn't mention this here is because he wasn't with them on that part of the journey. Note that We don't see the the we and us plural pronouns in this narrative until Paul is already on his way back through Macedonia and on his way to Troas in verse 5. So the collection had already been taken up at that point. That's when Luke joins them. But Luke does mention this collection later. After Paul returns to Jerusalem and he gets arrested there, and he's standing trial before Felix at Caesarea, Luke records Paul saying in chapter 24 that he brought the collection that he had taken up from the Macedonians and had given it to the saints in Jerusalem upon his return. But the point here is that Paul knew of the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, and he was intentional and deliberate to do whatever he could to seek to meet those needs and it's clear from his letters at least that that brought great encouragement to the saints that's one way Paul encouraged the saints that we see here the second way that Paul encouraged the saints is by meeting with the saints in person look again at verse 1 Luke writes after the uproar ceased that's the uproar in Ephesus that's the riot that that Brian covered last week from the second half of chapter 19 so he's still in Ephesus at this point what does he do we're told that Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them he said farewell and departed for Macedonia so who are the disciples that he sent for well it's the brothers and sisters 
who had come to faith during his two years of ministry in the city of Ephesus. He sent for them to come and be with him in person, to be present with him, so that he might meet with them face to face and encourage them before departing. He doesn't send a letter. He doesn't send a messenger pigeon. He doesn't send a text, an email, an IM. He meets with them in person. And then in verse 2, when he gets to Macedonia, what happens there? Verse 2 says, When he had gone through those regions, that is the region of Macedonia, and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Paul's personal ministry to the churches all throughout this region is a ministry that is marked by personal encouragement, meeting with the believers, meeting with the disciples, face-to-face, in-person, to encourage them. Again, while he's down in Greece, down in Corinth, we know that he wrote the entire book of Romans. And he writes this, listen to this, in Romans chapter 1. So he's, he's in Corinth. He's hanging out with the church there, seeking to strengthen them and encourage them. And this is what he writes to the Roman believers in chapter 1 of Romans, For I long to see you. I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So as he's spending these three months down in Corinth, he writes to the brothers and sisters in, in Rome, and he says, I long to see you. I I long to put my eyes on you. I long to be in your presence so that we might strengthen one another. So that our faiths might be mutually encouraged. Such was the heart of the Apostle Paul. To meet with brothers and sisters in person. Face to face. So that he might encourage them and strengthen them in their faith and as he admits there to the Romans in Romans 1 not only is he used to strengthen their faith but God uses them to strengthen his faith they mutually encourage one another and then a third way that Paul encourages the saints here is by partnering with them in gospel mission in verse 4 alone there Luke mentions no less than seven of these gospel partners of the Apostle Paul by name. Eight, if you include Luke himself, who joins the narrative there in verse 5. And as we read through Paul's letters, we know that when Paul gets to that point in his letter, when he begins to thank people, we'll see a lot of these names pop up again and again as he thanks them for the encouragement that they have been to him in partnership in gospel ministry. These were guys with whom Paul shared not only a common faith, but a common mission, as Jesus had told them, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What what an encouragement they must have been to one another as they sought to link arms with one another to go after a common purpose to take the gospel to the nations together. So as we look at Paul in these first six verses, 
I think we would do well to consider following his example in encouraging the saints. First, like Paul, we too should consider how to help with the tangible needs of the saints. Each of us in this very room who have been helped tangibly by other brothers and sisters in our own faith family know what an encouragement this can be to us when we have those needs. Whether it's meals provided when a family is dealing with sickness or whether it's helping you to move to a new home or someone coming over to mow your yard when you have yet another knee surgery or whether it's having brothers or sis- brothers and sisters pitch in and help you afford to double the baby formula when God gives you two children at one time instead of one. All of these are things that Susan and I have been recipients of. And we couldn't begin to tell you what an encouragement it's been in those seasons of our life when the body of Christ has so graciously served us and helped us in these tangible ways. And we could go around the room, I know, and hear testimony after testimony of much the same thing. The point is, we're a family. We are a body. We are the body of Christ. And when one part of the body is hurting, then the other part of the body takes up the slack and pitches in and serves and seeks to meet that need. Quite honestly, I think our church does a marvelous job at this as I hear story after story after story of folks who are served in tangible ways during times of need. And so be encouraged, church, that you're doing well in this and continue that and continue to persevere in that. But I think it's quite possible that some may not be benefiting from this aspect of the life of the body. And if that's the case, perhaps it's because you're not connected to the body through the primary means of connection that we have here at New Branch, which is our base groups. Our base groups are essentially a family within a family, a a church within a church, where your needs are known and where your needs are met. But if you're not connected or participating in a base group, then how will your needs be known so that they are met? And so perhaps this is a, an exhortation for you to participate and engage in the life of our body through a base group. But not just so that your needs will be known about and met, but also so that you can know about and meet the needs of your other brothers and sisters in Christ. See, it's not just about receiving encouragement from the body, but it is about the blessing of giving encouragement to the body as well. Secondly, like Paul here, we too should meet with one another in person in order to encourage one another. God didn't design for us to live in isolation from one another, but rather to be in mutual dependence on one another. We need each other. And that begins with being present with one another. Now, if, if I were to do, to do a poll this morning, if we were to do a poll in here, 
and, and, and see why it is that we don't spend more time together, I would guess that the number one reason would be time. That, that we live such busy lives that we simply have a hard time finding time in order to be present with one another so that we might encourage one another. To which I think we would do well to consider the Apostle Paul in these first six verses. In these six verses, he travels over a thousand miles, most of it on foot. He writes both 2 Corinthians and the entire book of Romans. He deals with riots, plots against his life at every turn. And yet he still finds time to seek out meeting with other brothers and sisters in person, face to face, to encourage them. Church, could I be so bold as to say to myself as well as to each of you that if we're too busy to meet with one another and encourage one another, then we're too busy. The Greek verb for encourage, I mentioned it earlier, parakaleo, para means alongside or next to, and kaleo means to call, and so it literally means to call next to you, to call alongside or to come alongside one another. If we're going to make it through this life that the Lord has given to us with our faith strong, our testimony intact, if we're going to live faithfully on mission for Him, accomplishing the mission that He's given to us to accomplish, both in our families and in our community, then we need brothers and sisters alongside us, next to us, holding us up, encouraging us, strengthening us when we're weak. Listen to this wise counsel, this sage advice from King Solomon, who writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fail, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail over one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Church texts and emails are fine, phone calls are better, but there is no replacement for being present with one another physically and putting our arm around a brother or sister who finds themselves in a place where they need encouragement to strengthen their faith, to remind them of the gospel, and yes, to physically embrace them and remind them that they're not in this alone. Church, how might the Lord be leading you to consider this week even how to be present more in the life of your brothers and sisters around you in this faith family to encourage them? And then thirdly, like Paul, we too should seek to forge these kinds of gospel partnerships with one another as we seek to be on mission together. Just as Paul did not go on gospel mission alone, neither should we. Just as Paul sought out these gospel partnerships and friends in ministry, so should we. 
We talked about this a few weeks ago as we looked at another instance of Paul and some of his gospel partnerships, and we reminded one another that everyone in this room is a gospel partner of yours. Every fellow member of this church is one of your friends in ministry. The folks who are in your base group together with you are your gospel partners, your friends in ministry, with whom you share not just a common faith, but a common mission to glorify God by making disciples of all nations, beginning within the church, but then going outside of the church to the community around us and extending to the nations. And we don't engage in this mission individually and by ourselves, but corporately and in partnership with one another on mission. In just a couple of weeks, we get an opportunity to tangibly live this out as we have our annual Serve Week, where we will display our partnership and unity as we wear what is normally a very loud color t-shirt together, and we'll go out into the community together displaying and declaring the gospel together. But church, we don't have to wait for Serve Week every summer. We can do this every week as we link arms with one another throughout the year, to be on mission, displaying and declaring the gospel. So the Apostle Paul sought to encourage the saints by giving and helping them and meeting their needs, by being present with them and meeting with them in person, face-to-face to encourage them, and by forging these kinds of gospel partnerships and linking arms with other brothers and sisters and inviting them to be on mission with him. So let's look at ways in which we as a church can be encouraged by Paul's example and seek to follow him. Because whether we know it or not, whether we admit it or not, we need this kind of encouragement if we're going to run this race with endurance to the end. So let's move on now to the second six verses of our passage, verses 7 through 12. And this curious little story about this young man named Eutychus who makes a poor seating choice during Paul's preaching there in Troas. He chooses to sit by a third-story window. And when Paul gets a bit long-winded, this young fellow falls asleep and falls out of the window to his death. Now, fortunately for him... God uses the Apostle Paul to restore his life. But I think it's hilarious that Paul just keeps on preaching until daybreak. He, he, he doesn't stop. He doesn't skip a beat. He's like, Eutychus is fine. Don't worry about Eutychus. He'll be okay in the morning. Now point number 42. And he just keeps on preaching. Now, what's the lesson that we're supposed to walk away from this passage with? I want to see a show of hands because it's probably right down the middle. How many of you think that the lesson from this is don't fall asleep during the sermon? How many of you think that's the lesson? Yes, there's one. There's one. I see that hand. I see another. I see another. All right. There's two or three. All right. How many of you think the lesson that we're supposed to learn is don't preach long-winded sermons? Look at all those hands. Look at that. How many of you think it's neither? Yeah, you're right. Neither of those are the point of this passage. The point of these six verses, like the point of the first six verses, 
is to teach us a lesson about encouraging the saints. At the end of this passage in verse 12, we're told that the saints were not a little comforted. But the word for comfort there is the same word that is translated encourage the other two places in this chapter that we saw earlier. Parakaleo. They say that they were not a little comforted because they were a lot parakaleoed. They were greatly encouraged, as some translations put it. And what encouraged the saints in Troas here turns out to be a beautiful picture of how the New Testament church can be encouraged in our weekly gatherings. Because that's what we see here. Four things for us to note here as we look at these second set of six verses, verses 7 through 12. Four things about their gathering that encourages the saints, that brings encouragement to the church. First, they gathered weekly. They gathered weekly. Paul was only in Troas for seven days, one week. And in that one week, he gathers together with the saints in their weekly gathering. We can tell here from the way Luke puts this that this was the normal, typical operation for the church, that they would gather weekly. And it was in the context of their weekly gathering that the church was encouraged. They made their weekly gatherings a priority. And I would submit to you that it was a lot more difficult for them to gather in first century Roman context than it is for us to gather in our 21st century American context. They didn't have a church on every corner. Usually it was one church in every town. And so it was a lot more than just piling the kids in the minivan and driving a few minutes down the road. It it probably involved a significant walk in order to gather with the saints. Attending a weekly church gathering in that context was not a culturally accepted norm by any stretch. Now, it's probably becoming less and less so in our own context. But for the most part, today, people don't look at you crosswise when you tell them that you're going to church on Sunday. But in that context, that was very unusual for them to do. Also, for most of the folks who were coming to faith and and walking to these gatherings, these weekly gatherings, these church services, were folks who had a subsistence kind of life. And if they didn't work, they they didn't eat. And so for them to take time away from the farm um, and and their agricultural work or uh, time away from selling their wares in the marketplace meant significant sacrifice for them. And they were willing to do that. They were willing to, to make that sacrifice because it was a priority for them. Whereas for us, most of us, not all of us, but most of us have at least Sunday off and maybe uh, at least another day off during the week. The people of the first century made sacrifices to ensure that that the weekly gathering of the saints was a priority for them. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. We read from it earlier. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And then he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Now that probably meant more than just the weekly gathering, but it certainly didn't mean less than the weekly gathering. 
Not forsaking our own assembling together, he says, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the day as you see, all the more as you see the day approaching. Now I know that in, in a sense I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, telling a, a room full of folks who have gathered on Memorial Day weekend in a church service that the weekly gathering of the saints is important. But maybe there's someone here that, that, that needs to be reminded of this. Or maybe there's someone this week who's listened to this online who needs to be reminded that the weekly gathering of the saints is critically important. This weekly gathering of the saints is one of the most important means that we are given to be encouraged in our walk with Jesus. And so neglecting it is one of the most detrimental things that we can do in our walk with Jesus. Secondly, what do we see here? They gathered weekly to do a number of things. First of all, they gathered weekly to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. What day of the week did they gather on? We're told in verse 7 that on the first day of the week, they gathered with the saints. And why did they gather on that day? That wasn't the day that the Apostle Paul grew up gathering with his fellow Israelites in Jerusalem. He grew up gathering together on the last day of the week. Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. So why did the Christians in Troas and and Berea, and Philippi, and Thessalonica, and Antioch, and everywhere else that people came to faith in Christ throughout the Roman Empire. Why why did they gather on the first day of the week on Sunday? Well, that was because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the day that Jesus conquered sin and death forever. And so beginning with that first Sunday after his bodily resurrection, the the body of Christ, the church, the bride of Christ, has been gathering on the first day of the week to commemorate his resurrection ever since and will continue to do so until he comes back for his bride. See, the resurrection isn't just something that we celebrate once a year at Easter. It is the very reason that we gather on this day and not any other day to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when we gather, we gather on the, it's called the Lord's Day, and it is the Lord's Day because it's the first day of the week, the day in which Jesus rose from the dead. And so our weekly gatherings should be a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what an encouragement that is to each of us to gather together each and every week to be reminded that the grave is empty and the throne is occupied by our risen king. That's what we get to do each Sunday. Celebrate and be reminded of the implications that Jesus is alive. And the gospel is true. Thirdly, they gathered weekly to celebrate the Lord's resurrection and to to observe the Lord's supper. Again, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Notice how Paul, excuse me, uh, Luke writes that with almost just an assumption on his own part that his readers will understand that, that this was normal and typical that when they gathered weekly, they would break bread. It's just assumed when we gathered together to break bread on the first day of the week. As in, 
Of course, that's what we do when we gather. Also look down at verse 11. After Paul restores the life of young Eutychus, we're told in verse 11 that Paul, after Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. To break bread is just biblical language for observing the Lord's Supper. You know, I was struck by this this week, that if we're going to use verse 7 to justify gathering on the first day of the week, which we should, why shouldn't we use verse 7 to justify taking the Lord's Supper every week when we gather? Now, certainly there is more scriptural foundation for the church gathering on the first day of the week being the Lord's Day than there is about observing the Lord's Supper weekly, every week. And admittedly, there is no biblical command for us to observe the Lord's Supper every single week when we gather. Or else, if there was, there would be no argument about it. That's what we would do. But in my study of Scripture this week, and and quite honestly, in my meditation on this verse in particular, I began to wonder why we wouldn't observe the Lord's Supper when we gathered weekly? And the answers that I came up with were more and more unconvincing to me. This is something for us to pray about as a church. We don't celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. We do it about every three weeks. But I think this is something that we as elders would solicit your prayers for wisdom about. This is something for us to bring to the Lord. But at least for today, we're going to. We weren't planning on it. We had the Lord's Supper scheduled for next Sunday, but as I spent time on this passage this week, I got convicted that it would be weird for us not to. And so we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. I texted all the elders and deacons yesterday, and I was like, guys, what do you think? And they were on it. They jumped on it and made it happen. And So we'll celebrate that. Whether or not that will be an every week thing from now on, um, I think that's up to each church to decide what is best. But that's what we'll do today. And when we observe the Lord's Supper, church, as we will do after the sermon here in just a bit, we are encouraged because we are rehearsing the gospel. We're reminded of our desperate and ongoing need for grace. We are reminded of the Lord's substitutionary an atoning sacrifice on the cross for our sins and our rebellion against him. We're reminded of his resurrection and and the eternal hope of heaven for all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ alone. Is there anything that could be more encouraging than that? No wonder they left not a little comforted from this gathering. Not only so, but it also encourages those who are outside the faith to consider their lost condition and to consider the hope of forgiveness and salvation that lies only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they gathered weekly to celebrate the Lord's resurrection, to observe the Lord's Supper, and then fourthly, to hear the word of God proclaimed. And church, I know that I can be a bit long-winded at times. 
I know that at times my preaching can drone on for a seemingly endless period of time, like perhaps this morning. But Paul preached until midnight. And when he gets interrupted by a guy falling out of a third-story window and he has to bring him back to life, he, he doesn't pack it up for the night. He just keeps on preaching until daybreak. Now the Lord knows, and you are well aware, and I'm certainly well aware that I'm no Paul. And I would never suggest that I could ever hope to preach even a fraction of the quality and effectiveness of the Apostle Paul's preaching. But I would submit to you that this passage is not necessarily about the quality and effectiveness of Paul's preaching, but rather the hunger of the people for the word of God. Paul admits as much when he says this in 1 Corinthians 2. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness. Listen to how he describes his own preaching. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. They, they endured Paul preaching until the wee hours of the morning, not because Paul was a gifted orator, but because he fed them the word of God, and they were famished, and they couldn't get enough of it. And so they hung on every word. Please believe me when I tell you that I don't take this as license to preach long sermons. I really don't. If anything, I'm endeavoring to preach shorter sermons. But I think we should take from this that if we find ourselves easily distracted, easily bored, or with a short attention span when someone is preaching the word of God, perhaps it's an indication that we have lost our hunger for the word of God. Maybe we filled our minds with so much from the world that we've lost much of the taste for the things of God. Or maybe we've been so conditioned by our TikTok microwave culture that we no longer can linger over extended periods of time to consider deep biblical truths. Whatever the reason, church, let us condition ourselves to drink deeply from the well of Scripture when we gather together as a church And quench that thirst and and satisfy that hunger with healthy helpings of Bible when we gather together. The early church was not a little encouraged, meaning it was greatly encouraged. Because they gathered weekly to celebrate the Lord's resurrection, to observe the Lord's supper, and to hear the word of God proclaimed. May we do the same. And with a renewed commitment to the weekly gathering of the saints and all that that means. And a renewed commitment to to do what Paul was doing in the first six verses. to, To be willing and look for ways to tangibly meet the needs of our brothers and sisters. And to make room and margin in our lives to to meet with them 
in person, face to face, to encourage them with the word and remind them of the gospel. And as we forge these partnerships and link arms with one another to partner in mission, may we find ourselves strengthened and encouraged to keep fighting the faith and keep running the race until he comes to bring us home. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this reminder of how the early saints were encouraged. And Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we find ourselves at times in need of encouragement. Whether it's because of a season of suffering, a season of loss, a season of questioning, a season of doubt, just a busy season where we are weary and tired. We find ourselves in need of encouragement. And and we're reminded here that you have given us the body of Christ as a gracious means of strengthening our faith, pointing us back to the word, reminding us of the gospel. And Father, each of us in this room has a role to play in that. We're not just recipients, we're, we're the givers as well. And so, Father, would you, would you find in us a, a, a willing heart to, to be used by you to be an encouragement for our brothers and sisters? And, and may we be renewed in our commitment to the gathering of the saints so that what you intend to do when we gather, to be glorified and to use this gathering to strengthen our faith, may continue to be true of us in this faith family. Father, we pray for those among us who have not professed faith in Jesus. Father, maybe they're perplexed by all of this mutual encouragement and what this means, but Father, in their heart of hearts, they know that they are desperately lost apart from you. And we pray, Father, that you would grant them the hope of the gospel that we talked about earlier that even as we celebrate communion in just a few moments, as they, as they just sit quietly and observe God's people taking these elements as symbolic representations of, of our great hope in your Son, Jesus Christ, may they recognize that apart from you, they have no hope. Would you, Father, in this moment, Grant them repentance of sins and faith in Jesus to be reconciled back to you through faith in your Son and what He accomplished on the cross. Would you redeem back to yourself a new worshiper for your glory? Would you do that even now? Father, we love you. Be with us now as we observe the Lord's Supper, recognizing what you've done for us in your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.